This is Nyamshana's podcast. I am Nyamshana Prudence. On Saturday evening, 26th March 2022, I tuned into the symposium in celebration of 50 years of Walter Rodney's book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, and 100 years of Julius Nyerere, former president of Tanzania. Walter Rodney was a prominent Guyanese historian, political activist, and academic. He was assassinated in 1980. I recorded some sessions. The presentations were truly remarkable, showcasing African excellence on the continent and the diaspora. The aura in the room was energetic and insightful, as the speakers so fondly celebrated and remembered the two great men. This episode features the voices of Horace G. Campbell, an international peace and justice scholar and professor of African-American studies and political science at Syracuse University in Syracuse, New York. Walter Boyer directed the Tanzania Publishing House that published Walter Rodney's How Europe Underdeveloped Africa in 1972, helping the book spread across Africa. Issa Shivja, Tanzanian author and academic, reminded us that the same system of capitalist exploitation, which started with African blood, is continuing to grind away African blood and land today. Vijay Prashad of the Tricontinental Institute of um, social research so eloquently talked about the history of colonialism matched by the constant state of anti-colonial movements which inspired Walter Rodney to say Africa is on the move. Cindy Peters who also features in this episode speaks on the facts that, that there are still 19 nations in the world around the Caribbean region that are still being colonized and awaiting full emancipation. I hope your Pan-African spirit is fired up. In 1974, the previous year, the African National Liberation Movements defeated the Portuguese to win the freedom of Angola, Cape Verde, Guinea-Bissau, Mozambique, Sao Tome, Principe. Most of the countries on the African continent had won their freedom by 1975. South Africa, Southwest Africa, later Namibia, Rhodesia, later Zimbabwe, as well as Djibouti, Seychelles, and Western Sahara remained in colonial hands. Even in these colonial zones, from South Africa to Namibia to Zimbabwe, the people were on the move, fighting with their bodies and with their guns, with their poems and their murals. There was a refusal on the African continent to submit to the rule of the colonial master. Anti-colonialism was fierce across the continent, but there were already signs of ugliness. Kwame Nkrumah, who had been the first African south of the Sahara to take office and rule a people who wanted him to be their ruler, sniffed danger in the air from the very start. In 1958, a year after Ghana's independence, Nkrumah met a young man from the Congo, Patrice Lumumba, and the highly respected intellectual from Martinique, Franz Fanon, at the All African People's Conference held in Accra. In them, in Lumumba and Fanon, Nkrumah saw the future. If Lumumba's movement succeeded in the Congo, then the strategium of the rest of the land. And if Fanon's sharp wisdom about colonialism violence and the pitfalls of national liberation could be digested, then nothing could stop Africa. 
Nkrumah cultivated Lumumba, helping his fledgling movement with material and ideological support and then sending Ghanaian officials to assist Lumumba when he became the Prime Minister of the newly freed Congo in 1961. At the end of the All-African People's Conference, Fanon felt that all of the African continent would be free by 1960. Certainly, Congo's freedom in 1961, a year after Fanon's prediction, and Algeria's independence in 1962, a fight which Fanon participated in actively, affirmed Fanon's hopefulness. By 1960, the continent will be free, he felt, and 1962 was not so far off in terms of the long history of colonialism on the continent. When his guests left Accra, Nkrumah mused, the African revolution has started in earnest. This is precisely the feeling that Rodney had 18 years later when he said, Africa is on the move. In the intervening years between 1961 in 1975, the reality of what Fanon called the granite block set in. Lumumba's democratically elected government was overthrown by a Belgian, US, British engineered coup along with elements of the Congolese elites. Lumumba was then assassinated brutally in 1961. Long live the Congo, long live Africa, Lumumba wrote in his final letter to his wife, Pauline. Africa is on the move, Rodney wrote. Four years later, the British ambassador to Ghana, A.W. Snelling wrote, on the whole, it is in the interest of Britain that Nkrumah should cease to rule Ghana. The US had already set in motion plans to overthrow Nkrumah. They hated Nkrumah for his defense of national liberation on the continent and they felt aggrieved that his book, Neocolonialism, The Last Stage of Imperialism, was such an indictment of imperialism in Africa. Robert Smith of the U.S. State Department later said of Nkrumah's book, published in October 1965, that it was simply outrageous. We were blamed for everything in the world. U.S. aid to Ghana was cancelled as a consequence. The book and Nkrumah's politics would be his downfall. Smith revealed in 1989 that the book might have contributed in a material way to Nkrumah's overthrow shortly thereafter. That shortly thereafter was in 1966, less than a year later. By 1966, therefore, the coups in Congo and Ghana prevented the left from being in power. Other lesser-known coups against Louis Ravang Sor of Burundi in 1961 and against Modibo Keita of Mali in 1967 defined a continent of coups. These coups, many of them undertaken by the militaries on behalf of the imperialists, were studied carefully by the South African communist Ruth First in her 1970 book, The Barrel of a Gun, Political Power in Africa and the Coup d'Etat which argued that these coups, now almost a familiar sight, came because the military was a holdover from the colonial period, other state institutions were weak, and radical forces were too fragmented to drive an agenda. Mostly, the military entered with a whisper in the ear from a Western ambassador. 
Nkrumah took refuge in Guinea, where he wrote his account of the coup called Dark Days in Ghana, Ghana published in 1969. Examples of CIA activity in Africa, he wrote, would provide material for a book of its own. But even here, having been overthrown in a coup, clear-eyed about imperialism in exile in Guinea, Nkrumah wrote, If for a while the imperialists appear to be gaining ground, we must not be discouraged, for time is on our side. The permanency of the masses is the deciding factor, and no power on earth can prevent its ultimate decisive effect on the revolutionary struggle. Six years later, after the Portuguese had been defeated in Africa, Rodney writes, Africa is on the move. This is a paraphrase almost of the last paragraph in Nkrumah's Dark Days in Africa. Time is on our side. The permanency of the masses is the deciding factor. Africa is on the move. In 1972, Rodney published How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, his most well-known book. He wrote this book while he was teaching in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, which had won its independence in December 1961. In 1967, Tanzania took a left turn with the Arusha Declaration in which Julius Nyerere and his party attempted to develop an African path to socialism. In a text written for Maji Maji in 1971, Rodney participated in a debate with his Marxist comrades in Dar es Salaam over the implications of the Arusha Declaration. This essay of Rodney's was on the concept of disengagement from imperialism. Could a country such as Tanzania craft a path for itself outside the tentacles of imperialism? A fierce debate gripped the Marxists of Dar. Many of their contributions published by Isa Shivji in The Silent Class Struggle, 1974. In How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, published after this debate, by the way, in this beautiful edition from Verso, Africa, published after this debate, Rodney would show the depth of colonial power on the African had been designed in the various regions of the continent to imperialism. This was a view shared with Nkrumah in his 1965 neo-colonialism, which Rodney cites. By the way, the fingerprints of Nkrumah's African liberation thought are all over the work of Walter Rodney. What is disengagement? It does not mean total isolation, Rodney wrote but the reduction of economic dependency, elimination of surplus outflow, utilization of this surplus for the construction of nationally integrated economies, equitable cooperation with friendly socialist countries, and mobilization of the masses for rapid development and defense. Nationalism is, nationalization is one method of initiating this disengagement. But nationalization has its limits since it does not automatically lead to the better management of the firm or the use of the surplus. It is the peasantry, Rodney wrote, who need to disengage from imperialism. Rodney wrote that the peasantry must disengage since it is they who must lead in the African context and set the terms for the petty bourgeois intellectuals. The revolution requires, Rodney writes, that the millions who have been gagged throughout history should speak and choose. 
It is the responsibility of the revolutionaries to find ways and means of indicating to peasants and workers the relevance of socialist ideology and perceptions to the latter's day-to-day -day lives. In 1972, when Rodney published How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, it struck people as a book of great scholarship, but mainly of sublime intent. It took the complex history of Africa and showed how the period of colonialism had disrupted its development and left it in a situation of adversity. It showed as well how the masses of people had fought off as best as they could powerful forces and how they found ways to survive the storm of colonialism. Then Rodney stopped. He could say no more. Rodney turns his book over to A.M. Babu, the Tanzanian Marxist, to offer the postscript. Babu is harsh. This is 1972. With few exceptions, Babu wrote, it is sad to have to admit that Africa is ill-served by the current conglomeration of what passes for leaders throughout the continent. Movements produce leaders. It is not a judgment about individuals. It's an indictment from Babu of the depth of the movements. The coups had removed leaders who were linked to movements. And now movements were in disarray. Leaders had appeared, but not from movements. Some of them from the military barracks. Babu's grip of the realities is strong, but also hard to digest. Rodney said similar things about his native Caribbean. He was not comfortable perhaps saying these things about Africa, about which he wrote and, and where he then lived. The reality is that imperialism's tentacles had wound themselves deeply across the continent, reaping the benefits of colonial power over the economy without being troubled by the inconveniences of colonial political rule. It was this context that led to the suffocation of so many national liberation movements and so many post-colonial states. The malignancy is in the global system, not on the continent. And that's an important point we get from Rodney, from Babu, from Isa Shivji, from Nkrumah, from Lumumba, and from Fanon, a point that says that this is not an African problem. This, friends, is an imperialism problem. Part two, imperialism is an ugly force. Imperialism is an ugly force. At its heart is the desire for total control. There is the desire for political control, the denial to people around the world to maintain their own sovereignty. There is the desire for control of access to economic resources to make sure that only certain countries decide on behalf of corporations what should be done to our resources. There is a desire for control of our societies and cultures, colonizing our minds and our aesthetics, our way of life and our way of thinking. Imperialism is not a matter of the past. The habits and institutions of imperialism remain today deeply embedded in our social life. The illegal sanctions regime put in place by the United States against about 30 countries, including Cuba, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, Iran, is an example of the habits of imperialism, the arrogance to suffocate any process wow. that is not dominated by the... There's a straight line that runs from the attempt to destroy the Haitian Revolution that begins in 1804 
to the attempt in our time to overthrow the Cuban Revolution. This was understood by C.L.R. James, whose um, after the Black Jacobins written in the 1960s was called from Tucson to Fidel Castro. The Haitian people of colonialism and enslavement, the French and the United States forced the Haitian people to pay $21 billion for liberating themselves. That is the attitude of imperialism. Then when the Haitian people tried to build some form of sovereignty, every time the Haitians raised their heads, they were crushed by invasion and occupation of U.S. Marines from 1915 to 1934, by the U.S.-backed Duvalier dictatorship from 1957 to 1990, and then chaos with two U.S.-backed coups, 1991-2004, both against Jean-Bertrand Aristide. Haiti stands in for the long history of imperialism, one that exists in our time. We know that imperialism is not a relic, at least many of us know that, but it's an essential part of the structure of our time. The tentacles of imperial thought suffocating us alongside the imperialist system of capital accumulation on a global scale. These two, the cultural and the economic, exist in tandem Two snakes dancing around each other. Two processes that feed off each other. The fact of economic exploitation reinforcing the idea of cultural inferiority and the idea of cultural inferiority allowing firms to pay workers in the global south less. Let's look at the structure of imperialism through the eyes of Zambian children in the copper belt region of that country. The copper underneath the ground enters cell phones of people around the world. The copper is inside your hand. It's in your identity. You are shaped by copper wires that are everywhere. That means you're directly connected to that child in Zambia. That child, child is not outside you. The child is intimately linked to you by the imperialist exploitation of the copper resources in Zambia. But you don't see that because you buy the phone from a shop. It comes wrapped in plastic and in a nice box. It doesn't say that, by the way, you're getting this phone at this cheap price relatively because a child in Zambia is illiterate. I'd like to go to an Apple shop or some shop where you get these phones and put stickers on all the boxes saying this phone is cheap because a child in Zambia is illiterate. You need to make the connection because it's not that the child in Zambia is external to you. The challenge in Zambia is internal to your social condition. The problem is there. Globalization is an objective fact. This is what makes internationalism necessary. You might not be doing anything to change the conditions for that child, which means that you're globalized, you're linked to that child, but you're not an internationalist. That for me is objectionable. You can't have globalization, the copper from Zambia on your phone and the illiteracy of that child, and not be an internationalist in standing in solidarity with struggles of the people of Zambia. Part of this idea of the other is not that there's an other outside there, but that we're both related to each other by the social relations of production, but we're at the same time estranged from each other by ideologies of various kinds, including individualism and nationalism. 
In Capital, Marx's greatest work, in the opening section, he writes of the fetishism of commodities. Marx makes a lot of the idea of the fetish, which is a thing that in certain forms of religious activity is seen as having consciousness, whereas the people who interact with each other do so only through the fetish and not directly with each other. People in this form do not have an independent or interlaced consciousness. They are related through the thing which has consciousness and which subordinates humans to it. The thing will move and you take instructions from it. That's the fetish character of the thing, which could be a doll or an idea such as God. So Marx says, listen, what happens is that you and I, our social relations are mediated through commodities or through money, which is merely a commodity, the embodiment of commodities. Our links to each other in a capitalist system are formed through commodities. That's the fetish character of the commodities, which interrupts human interaction since our relations are mediated through commodities. There's a wall between us and that wall is the commodity form and the generalized form of the commodity, which is money. In that way, what divides me and you from that child from Zambia is this movement of copper, mined for low wages, driven to the ports in, say, Durban, South Africa, shipped away to China, then put into an iPhone. It then comes out of the factory in Shenzhen, packed in Apple's wonderful designs. Between the child in Zambia and the consumer are a series of transformations, a range of commodities added to each other with such amazing names as indium and wolframite. And the accumulation of these commodities vanishes into the phone itself. The content of copper in the phone far outstrips that of any other metal. The raw copper becomes processed copper, becomes copper wiring, becomes highly sophisticated copper instruments. That is then sorted into an iPhone, which is then boxed up. By the time the consumer sees the phone, the child has disappeared. Zambia has disappeared. Chile has disappeared. Peru has disappeared. There is a fetish character that makes the people in Zambia, the child and the minor, both of them, othered, separated from the consumer um, in the rest of the world. But they are of course linked intimately by the socialization of labor, by the social relations that are underneath the surface. The phone pings. There's a meme about hunger in Zambia. The consumer feels bad. Let me donate some money to them because I don't know anything about Zambian, Zambia. The Zambians are others, other from the consumer in other parts of the world. Their social existence is seen as separate. This is a result of the fetish character of commodities in capitalism. Listen, friends, one wants to say there's nothing like that going on. The Zambian miner is intimately related to you because the miner's labor is inside the phone. When the consumer says, I don't know anything about them, that's true. But nonetheless, Zambia is intimately inside the consumer's life through the mined copper in the phone and in other devices. Zambia is not that far away from everywhere and nor are Zambians. The wretched conditions of illiteracy are related to the fact that Apple both sells the phone at a reduced price and is still able to make a fabulous profit. The iPhone retails at a ridiculously underpriced level. If you calculate what an iPhone should cost, 
if the wages paid along the commodity chain were at the level in the North Atlantic, each phone would cost around $30,000. We did a um, notebook at Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, which I direct, called the rate of exploitation, the case of the iPhone. If the phone is entirely manufactured in the United States, it would retail at $30,000. Who's paying for the phone to be discounted to around $699? The balance is being paid by the community in the copper belt, which is paid very low wages and where there are barely any social wages to maintain schools and medical centers. The standard of living in Zambia is artificially suppressed so that they can be adequately super exploited and those wages stolen from them and the money stolen from the Zambian people through taxes and so on because the discount for Apple's super profits and the lower price for the phone have to be attained. All of this vanishes because of the fetish character of our relations with each other where the commodities come in between us. Because we are othered from other people, set in an artificial remove from them, we see their suffering and then we say, oh, I should donate something. It's not that donations and charity are bad, but they merely reinforce the fetish character of our relations and they demean people since we don't see through charity that the people in Zambia are subsidizing the lives of the consumers and they, that they deserve a fair price for their labor and not this condition of super exploitation. Donations do not change the condition of the world. We need to strive to change the condition of the world. Um, that's really what we're trying to do. Uh, we don't need to just make consumers feel better. Charity remains necessary because the conditions of precious life are so bad these days. But charity is not the solution to the problem. Nor are empty words of critique for othering or of solidarity. Material support is needed. We need to support the efforts of the miners to build their unions, support the Socialist Party of Zambia as it builds the power of the people against the system. The only real decolonization is anti-imperialism and anti-capitalism. This is what Nkrumah understood. This is what Rodney understood then. It's true even now. You can't decolonize your mind unless you also decolonize the conditions of social production that reinforce the colonial mentality. On 23rd September 1960, before Lumumba was overthrown, before Nkrumah was overthrown, the USSR, the Soviet Union, put forward a resolution for e there's a reason why Rodney is so sympathetic um, to the Russian Revolution in this terrific edition uh, from Verso of his lectures from Dar es Salaam called the Russian Revolution. There's a reason why Rodney was sympathetic because the Soviet Union supported efforts at decolonization. 1960s, the USSR that puts forward the resolution for immediate decolonization. This resolution was opposed by the entire Western bloc led by the United States. A few months later, after this resolution was put on the table, 43 countries from Africa and Asia affirming the Bandung principles of 1955 put forward their own resolution, which was very similar to the Soviet one. Eventually, on the 14th of December 1960, the United Nations General Assembly adopted a resolution called Declaration on the granting of independence to colonial countries and peoples. This was the resolution originally put forward by the USSR 
then reshaped by African and Asian states. 89 countries, including the USSR, voted for the resolution. No one voted against it. But nine countries abstained. These nine countries were Australia, Belgium, Dominican Republic, France, Portugal, Spain, Union of South Africa, United Kingdom, and the United States. The United States stood with the old colonial powers in South Africa, apartheid South Africa, against a statement that read, the process of liberation is irresistible and irreversible. That statement is key to our thinking. The process of liberation is irresistible and irreversible. Remember, Africa is on the move. The process of liberation is irresistible and is on our side, wrote Nkrumah. The permanency of the masses is the deciding factor. But it's Rodney's line that should resonate. Africa is on the move. Thanks a lot, my friends. Take care of yourself. Looking at the establishment of the French and the Dutch experience on the continent, I would want us to think about small, the small island state of the Comoros. In 2001, the French asked its colonies, what do you want to do? Do you want to remain in close proximity to us or would you like to remain as a commune? In 2001, the Comoros Islands as a whole voted to become, not to, not to enter into becoming the 101st department of the French government. However, the French state used the combination of the votes on, the, on Mayotte, which is a part of the Comoros, and said, oh no, Mayotte wants to be the 101st department of France which is very clear in terms of the imposition on the imperialist nature and presence of France and its continued effort. And as we talked about the malignancy and the global experience, France and the Dutch still have presence in the Caribbean in terms of having colonies as we sit here today in 2022. There are currently 19 non-independent territories and countries in the Caribbean, and specifically there are 17 non-self-governing. I'm focusing more on the self-governing, and of course, these are constitutional relationships that are consistent with the labeling within the United Nations in their engagements of how the decolonization process you know, in, initiated in where Dr. Prasad mentioned in 1960 that this was where the international community had decided, well, you know, we want to move forward with the decolonization process. But I want you to remind us today that there still exists. We do still have colonies in this world. In the case of the Antilles, we have... I would say an ongoing struggle as we talk about solidarity. There's an ongoing struggle for liberation of 
the islands in the Dutch Antilles, the formerly Dutch Antilles. In the case of Bonaire, to be, in, to be specific, last week, I believe, they had a meeting with the permanent conference of political parties of Latin America, COPA, where they were lobbying within the region to ask to be repositioned on the UN's list of non-self-government territories. Our constellation in the Antilles in 1954, we were, we were actually left off of that list because we were considered to be a, an entire country within the Dutch kingdom. And hence, on the, in, the, in that point, at that time, in the progression of becoming, uh, in, the, in the progression of the decolonization process, now, if we, if we, why is it important for this country and the others, six countries, which are namely Aruba, Curacao, St. Martin, Bonaire, as I mentioned before, St. this ongoing triangle with this struggle with the Dutch in terms of the responsibility to report to the United Nations on the progress of the decolonization process has been left out of the discussion because we, were, we are ill-classified. And why is this important today? Because of these narratives, you know, that Dr. Rodney wants us to continue to look at why are we, be, why are we not understanding that the classification of these states are ill-advised for the benefit of empire, for the benefit of the imperials, imperial powers in these, in these, in these um, parts of the world. The narrative and the constant, the, the terms of the constant, the, oh, sorry, the terms of the conversation needs to change. The terms needs to change. These fancy labelings of non-self-governing, self-governing, or, or inter-judiciary systems are very fancy words and, are very, and as Dr. John mentioned, trickery in terms of making the citizens of these spaces believe that they're going through some form of liberation as they've gained in some of these constellations more autonomy over others to handle their internal affairs. But I employ the international community at this point to, in solidarity with the peoples of the Caribbean and other islands, because we also have those in the Asia Pacific and the Atlantic who are still not independent, and to really use the energy, I would say that's, a, that's available now, and the spirit of liberation that is in this time, in these in these era, to assist these countries in their efforts to liberate themselves, if they so choose. Because right now, it's very clear that these empires want to maintain their presence in the region. And how do they do so? By maintaining their colonies. The French and um, is still very impositional in Martinique and Guadeloupe and in St. Bart's 
in terms of how it engages. And of course, these economies, and we talk about economic exploitation, these economies are fragile economies with the engagements of natural disasters, or in the case of the, pan the recent pandemic, we in this part of the world usually have a very adverse effect to these economic shocks. But what happens if you're not an independent state? You are not able to go without the permission of these imperial powers to ask for assistance if you do need global assistance. As I mentioned before, in the case of Bonaire, they are actually on an international tour on trying to educate different parts of the world on how do we, how to get to gain assistance to be repositioned on the list of non-self-governing, oh, sorry, of self-governing territories. This is very important. And as I said, the malignancy, the malignancy exists. We are still living in imperial times, although it shows up in different forms, in different parts of the world. We have to remember that if we are not all free, we won't be free. Thank you. Rodney's writings on education. Kurt just made mention of his, um, his writings in the Institute of the Black World. Walter Rodney speaks. But his writings in this book, edited by Adrian Resnick, Tanzania, Revolution by Education, and that education should serve the purposes of building the revolutionary capabilities of the youth. Rodney was building on the ideas that had been articulated in Tanzania about education for self-reliance, that education should be free and universal, should be of good quality, should be relevant, and it should be education that rebuilds the confidence of Africa. Of course, in the very self, coming out the tradition of Phelps-Hopes, the Phelps-Hopes commission that built the Hampton education, that is education for submission. So today, Walter Rodney led the way in talking about reparative education, transformative education. And I saw two years ago where Joyce King was the presenter at the Walter Rodney Symposium on Transformative Education. As Walter Rodney summed up how Europe underdeveloped Africa, colonial education was education for subordination, exploitation, the creation of mental confusion, and development of underdevelopment. So we are at a very precarious moment how do we deal with education for transformation mm. and education to build the capabilities of the young people at the moment when the major capitalist countries want to tell, turn our children into nanobots. The defining questions of African knowledge quest systems, how to bring African languages 
to the forefront of the educational process. In Tanzania, the bioanthropologists are in the villages studying the original African languages of the Hadza, the Iraq, the Maasai, Samdur, Turkana, and how to turn these languages into vehicles for cognitive skills. So if we look at the four major technological skills, that is artificial intelligence and the ideas of nanotechnology, biotechnology and robotics, the studying of African languages are being mobilized to build the capabilities of the capitalist corporations. And yet there is still a struggle in Tanzania today to make Kiswahili the language of higher education so that we can build the confidence of the African youth so that we can have a quantum leap in the process of education for transformation. So the African languages, the cognitive skills of the youth, and fractal thinking, that is the thinking about the interconnectedness of human being, could provide a quantum leap out of the quagmire of capitalist domination. These are the challenges that we face today when we are faced with the crisis of capitalism that want to bring the world to think of war. We cannot speak today on Walter Rodney and Julius Nyerere the wars against humanity by the capitalist powers. Walter Rodney and Julius Nyerere grew up under the shadow of the Italian invasion of Abyssinia that started World War II. And the Pan-Africanists, such as C.L.R. James and, and Padmore, George Padmore, on the, this side of the Atlantic. And then there was Dubois and Robeson and the Council of African Affairs and the International African Service Bureau provided the Pan-African traditions and intellectual work that we saw in the fifth and sixth Pan-African Congresses. And they opposed World War II, just as we understood that World War II started in Abyssinia in 1935. We understand that the current war in Ukraine started with the NATO invasion and destruction of Libya. So we cannot speak today about Walter Rodney and Julius Nyerere without opposing wars and destruction. And I want to commend to this audience the resolutions of the global Pan-African movement in opposing the Russian invasion of, of, the, in, of, 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 of Ukraine and the resolutions of the global Pan-African movement. And I want to repeat the four resolutions. The first, immediate ceasefire in, of the war that is going on. Secondly, the creation of humanitarian corridors to end the suffering of the peoples. Third, retreat from the racist treatment of Africans in that part of the world. And fourth, to promote demilitarization in all parts of the world. 
end the Russian invasion in Ukraine, end the NATO destruction in Libya, end the Israeli destruction in Palestine, end the rule of France in Africa, and end the Saudi Arabia war in Yemen. So that we could not speak here on Walter Rodney and Nereri without opposing the wars that are going on. Let me take a moment and conclude by saying that Walter Rodney's intersected at the point in which the vision of human freedom when I first started to follow Nereri, I was always impressed why Nereri was wearing a kofia of, uh, as a follower of Islam. Nereri promoted progressive spirituality and did not promote the kind of divisions and exploitation of religious differences that we see today. Similarly with Walter Rodney, he promoted progressive spirituality among all peoples. And his depth of his spirituality, you could see in his groundings with his brothers and sisters in Jamaica. Of course, in Guyana, where Walter Rodney spent the last 60 years of his life, his work stands as a tribute to what is possible when the mobilization of the working people to transcend racial insecurities comes to the forefront. In Guyana, of course, there are so many misunderstandings about Walter Rodney's work in Africa. There is the urban legend that Walter Rodney left Tanzania because he was expelled by Nereri. And even some close comrades of Walter Rodney believe what members of the PNC party said about Walter Rodney leaving Tanzania, which is all based on falsehoods. And I would just urge our brothers and sisters in the Caribbean to have some more humility in understanding the relationship between Walter Rodney and Julius Nereri and the contributions that the people of Tanzania made to Walter Rodney's intellectual, political, and familial development. That as Caribbean people, we should have a little bit more humility in our relationship to the African peoples and understanding of the possibilities of the African Revolution. I think my 20 minutes are up, so I think I want to stop there and to say that I'm very pleased to participate in this important discussion about the importance of the work of Walter Rodney in his 80th birthday and Julius Nereri, a champion of Pan-African and human freedom. Thank you so much, Baba Harris. I was listening to you so carefully, I lost track of time, so I wouldn't even have known when it was time to interject. <laughs> um, but thank you so much, You, as you normally are with your uh, level of discipline, you stop uh, right on time. I uh, will turn now to remarks by Professor Issa Shivji, looking forward to uh, these comments as well. Uh, first of all, greetings from Dar es Salaam, to all comrades and brothers and sisters, who are meeting here. Dar es Salaam was, Dar es Salaam was the home of Malimu Julius Nyerere and also home of Comrade Walter Rodney. I never thought of Walter as someone stranger to our home. He was part of our home and our family in Dar es Salaam. 
So it is great really to be with you to commemorate the 100th birthday of Malimu and the 80th birthday of Comrade. Uh, happy birthday to Pat Rodney, uh, who actually <laughs> taught me to dance. So although I never became a proficient dancer, but at least she managed to get me off my shyness to go on the dancing floor. We are today commemorating William at 100 and Rodney at 80. And we are celebrating 50 years of the publication of How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. Comrade Brother Horace has really provided the context. So I shall I'll not repeat it. But needless to say, Malimu and Rodney were two iconic African leaders of the 20th century. And how Europe underdeveloped Africa is a classical book of African history on which my generation and subsequent generations have grown and understood how five centuries of exploitation and ravages wrought by European powers in the devastating march to capitalism took place. It's a work of highest form of historiography and a committed political work. An African does not have to be told to quote Marx that capital comes dripping from head to foot from every pore with blood and dirt. Because that barbaric system contained continuous in African blood even today. And Rodney documented and analyzed that in his book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. Because every African, then and now, we witness the bloody anti of capital in our societies. There are amazing similarities between William and Rodney, and as amazing differences. Horace has noted some of these in a very articulate and passionate way, which is what we expect from Horace. Malimu was from the continent, Rodney from the diaspora. Malimu led a formidable movement for independence in Tanganyika against British colonialism. Rodney, as a young boy of 11, distributed anti-colonial pamphlets in British Guyana as the people of Guyana fought against British colonialism. Both his parents were involved in the anti-colonial struggle. Tanganyika is on the African continent, the continent from millions of people 
were captured and sold into slavery. While Guyana is in the northern eastern tip of South America, where live the descendants of African slaves and endangered Indian labor. When you presided over a post-colonial state, while Rodney led a movement against the neo-colonial state, which eventually claimed his life. Both Malimo and Walter were socialists. One, an Ujamaa socialist, another, a Marxist socialist. Both were Pan-Africans. Malimu, with a statist view of Pan-Africanism, wrote me with a people's view of Pan-Africanism. Oh. There are remarkable comparisons between Malimu and Rodney. But given the constant of time, I will not go into all. I want to focus on two areas of their political lives and thought. And that too, I'll have to do it in a summary fashion. One, the ideology of socialism and their views and the outlook and the perspectives on Pan-Africanism. And I will end my remarks on what I consider to be one of the most important theoretical and political contributions of Walter Rodney, which I believe has not been fully recognized, appreciated, or theorized. With those introductory remarks, let me start with my first area, which is on socialism. As many of us would know, Malimu under the ruling party, at that time Tanganyika African National Union, now Chama Chama Piduzi, CCM, produced a document in 1967 called the Russia Declaration on Socialism and Self-Reliance. One of the remarkable documents of 20th century to come out of Africa. When you read Arusha Declaration today, it sounds as fresh as, as if it was written and produced yesterday. It captures the vision of what we would like to go, where we would like to go, and what we'd like to be. I don't have time to go into the antecedents of Arusha Declaration. Many of us have been brought up to believe that Arusha Declaration was simply proclaimed by the party. But actually there were lots of struggles, both before and after the Arusha Declaration. And as Brother Horace said, we have tried to document and analyze these struggles which led to the Russia Declaration and the struggles that took place after the Russia Declaration. In our recently published biography, a three-volume biography of Malimu Yarere, I don't know if you can see it, 
that are used as raw materials. Ninety percent right. of the world. So three-volume biography published by Kuki and Yorta. We refuse to have it published by Oxford or Longman's or whatever. Walter Goya and Kuki Goya produced this volume and the standard of his production and the quality of his production is held as high as, as anywhere in the world. This covers the antecedents of the struggle and the struggles after the Arusha Declaration. Arusha Declaration was undoubtedly a socialist document in its orientation. But I would argue that underlying it is driving force was nationalism. Right from the beginning, Malim was preoccupied, almost obsessed with building and maintaining national unity. For him, and he said it himself many times, national unity was more important than socialism. Now, if you have read and recall the post-Cold War, the, the Cold War situation in which African nations were born, you can appreciate why Malimu was so occupied with the question of national unity. Because many of the new countries, African countries born, were not able to build a nation. They immediately found themselves in various struggles, some racial, others ethnic, and always propelled by imperialist powers. Hence, Malimu's preoccupation with national unity. That's what contributed to Malimu not accepting the thesis of class struggle. He was even hostile to it. Many times reprimanded us who wrote about class struggles in Tanzania. The ideology and vision of socialism itself in the Russian Declaration was seen as cementing national unity. Now, Malimu's socialism was from the top, in fact, from the state. Workers and peasants were supposed to be beneficiaries, but not its drivers. The driver was the state, in practice meaning the state and the party bureaucracy, which eventually became a state party. Thus, Malimu's socialism had severe limits and these limits became extant and came out in the open in the 1980s and assured its downfall with the onslaught of neoliberalism, which gave the environment and the possibility for, internal, for the internal anti-socialist elements to flex their muscles. In brief, I would say Malimu's socialism was a national project not a social or a class project. And that is where Malimu and Rodney part ways. Malimu said in one of his uh, uh, interviews that he evolved into socialism. He did not just find socialism and adopted it. And truly so, because his earlier essay of 1962 called Jama, the basis of African socialism, you can see that 
Darusha Declaration is a giant step of evolution from that document to the understanding of socialism in the Darusha Declaration. The 1962 essay defined Ujama as an attitude of mind. So even a capitalist could be a socialist. And even a worker or person could be a capitalist. This was all a question of attitude of mind. And I'm not saying it myself, it's not inference. That's exactly what Malimu said in that essay. But Arusha Declaration is very different from the 1962 essay. It's a giant step forward in his evolution. It touches on the capitalist system as a system based on exploitation, as a system which exposes the working people, workers and peasants, and other small producers to oppression, exploitation, discrimination, and all the ravages of the capitalist system. So Malibu undoubtedly evolved from the socialism they talked about in 1962 to the socialism we talked about in 1967 in the Russia Declaration and his thesis on self-reliance. Rodney also has evolved in his assessment of Ujama. Around 1972, Rodney wrote a piece called Ujama and Scientific Socialism, in which he tried to show that Ujama can be characterized as scientific socialism. Maybe I take the opportunity to very briefly say that that article of Walter Rodney, of Comrade Rodney, when it was draft form, he brought it before the Congress for discussion. If I recall, at that time the title was Ujama as Scientific Socialism. And a few of us, a few of his comrades, were very, very critical of that article and disagreed with it. Years later, in Hamburg lectures, Rodney changed his view and was quite critical for Jama, accepting, accepting some of our critique, and actually quoting and citing from the writings of his dark comrades. That was Walter. That was Walter, because his analysis, his theory was based on concrete conditions. And he did not shy away from changing his position in the light of new, new evidence. So let me just end this part by saying that Rodney was a Marxist socialist. But he applied Marxism creatively, not dogmatically. In the process, making original contribution to the body of knowledge we call Marxism today. And at the end of my remarks, I will have an opportunity to, 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 to to mention one such uh, one such uh, 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 contribution. Now I turn to Pan-Africanism. Malimu's Pan-Africanism translated into African unity, unity of African states. And Malimu saw this process as a gradual process, block by block, region by region, <coughs> which Nkrumah called balkanization at a continental scale. 
This important debate and exchange of letters between Malimu and Krumah, Malimu referred to it in his last interview with Ikaweba Banti. It's a fascinating interview. You can find it online. Unfortunately, in our research for the biography, we could not. We have still not set our hands on that on that debate. But it was a very important debate. I shall say no more on that. Let me say that Malimu's view of Pan-Africanism was essentially statist, while Rodney's was people-centered. Rodney believed in Pan-Africanism for below. Rodney saw Pan-Africanism as a movement and as an anti-imperialist ideology for the liberation of Africa and Africans everywhere in the world and eventually for social emancipation. I would suggest that Rodney's Pan-Africanism is grounded in state in class, sorry, it's grounded in class, not in state. In this regard, we have to learn a lot from Rodney as a struggle to rebuild and reconstruct Pan-Africanism in our current phase. The question that should be posed and all of us should ask ourselves who would be the agency to carry on Pan-Africanism as a liberatory and an emancipatory project in the struggle of the African people all over the world? Who would be the agency? I'm not sure if Rodney ever discussed this explicitly, but inspired by him, I have more recently argued that the agency would be the working people of Africa and the diaspora. And that brings me to my last uh, 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 part of my contribution, and that is on Rodney's theoretical contribution. Undoubtedly, how Europe underdeveloped Africa itself is a contribution of how Marxist material, historical materialism was used by Rodney to trace the historical relationship between Europe and Africa in the context of the development of the global capitalist system. But on that I shall say no more because I'm sure other participants will be discussing. But I would like to focus mainly on Rodney's use of the concept of working people. This is the title of his book, which Horace referred to, History of the Working People of Guyana. That concept of working people, in my view, is pregnant with a major theoretical contribution. Until then, many Marxists would know that the agency of transformation revolution was always seen as the working class, as the proletariat. But the concept of working people is, is an advance on that. 
it includes workers in the sections of the world it includes the peasants it includes the so-called informal sector workers it includes other small producers and therefore and that it gives us a, a, a handle on who will be the agents of the transformation revolution that we are looking forward to. i don't have time to argue this in detail but i have tried to take first steps to theorize it and you will find a couple of articles on the concept of the working people on internet i believe that i was inspired and took my inspiration from to rodney and i believe that in my view besides how europe under develop africa the concept of working people is a great contribution a great theoretical contribution of Walter Rodney which can be further developed further theorized and it quite requires further theorization so i would say that rodney's political theoretical contribution rests on two building blocks one in his view of pan africanism as a movement and an ideology of liberation and social emancipation and his concept of the working people as a possible agency of the african revolution these provide us the building blocks on which we can build our current and future struggles thank you very much So thank you very much indeed for inviting me to participate in this celebration. I'm very grateful. Uh, it's a great pleasure to see the Rodney family, Kanini and Asha. It's lovely to see you. <laughs> it's uh, lovely to be part. And uh, I saw uh, Shaka is somewhere as well, I think. but I haven't seen him uh celebrating 100 years of uh, Malimu and uh, 80 years of uh, Walter uh, Rodney respectively these two historical giants pan africanists of the 20, mid 20th century uh is also to take time in my view to remind ourselves not only who they were the ideas principles and philosophies and the influences on africa the caribbean and the third world now referred to as the global south but before that i say happy birthday brother walter rodney happy 100th anniversary mwalimu baba taifa and may their souls rest in peace and continue to guide us i would like to say a few things about publishing how europe under developed africa and what susan <coughs> and what that meant to us at tanzania publishing house until publication of this book 
our company, TPH, was not known beyond our borders, beyond Tanzania. The British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan in 1965 had twisted a number of African heads of state at a Commonwealth Heads of State Conference and uh, uh, asked them to set up joint ventures with his company, Macmillan Education, to publish what would be lucrative textbooks, uh, school books in these countries, Zambia, Tanzania, Ghana, uh, Uganda, and so on. <clears throat> uh, between uh, 1966 and 1972, we published school books under that arrangement. But thanks to the publication of how Europe had developed Africa, TPH became well known, not only in East Africa, but in Central and Southern Africa. The book was actually banned in South Africa, but many copies were smuggled into the country. I remember visiting one uh, house in Swaziland and meeting a government minister who said he used to stop uh, in Dar es Salaam every time he traveled to see books that we had brought out. And uh, we had at that, at that time, a season uh, uh, <coughs> political science, uh, which was doing very well. And, uh, uh, and of course we, we published Kobredi uh, Sashimji's Class Struggle and other books, which then gave us a real boost. Um, this book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, gave us a boost of publicity and uh, I dare say, we still get some attention, we still get attention because we published this book. To give you an idea of just how uh, this book, how Europe and developed Africa and Walter Rodney are appreciated all over Africa, <clears throat> decades after publication. Three years ago, I traveled to Nigeria at Lagos Airport, one military officer singled me out and asked me for my passport. I didn't know why. I, but anyway, he looked at it and then excitedly asked Rodney, the author of How Europe Developed Africa. I said, no, I'm not, but I published the book. He was so excited, he called a few other officers to meet me. And from there on, I was given VIP treatment for having published How Europe Had Developed Africa. I did not stand in the immigration queue any longer and was escorted through customs and out the airport to a taxi to my hotel. Such is the high regard in which Rodney and his book were held. I was privileged to have worked with Mualimu Nyerere and also knew Walter and Patricia in Dar es Salaam and I've kept uh, contact with Pat ever since. Walter stayed me, with me in the last visit to Tanzania, to, to Africa, I believe, during which we spent many hours talking about what the future might look like, little knowing at the time that Walter's life would be cut short by the PNC government assassin. I plan to make a few comments on how, in my understanding, these two great Pan-Africanists and thinkers, thinker activists, 
uh, had similar approaches to African liberation. As you are all aware, Nyerere and Rodney attracted the interest and following of millions of people. For in addition to their revolutionary ideas, both of them lived simple lifestyles, shining ostentation and self-indulgence. They worked relentlessly, consistently producing writings and commentaries on contemporary issues. They were also eloquent speakers with a great sense of humor, and both of them had great interest in literature and poetry, especially the poetry that spoke to the conditions of the people and their struggles. These qualities made them leaders of exceptional ability to mobilize workers and peasants in Tanzania and Guyana in their struggles for liberation and emancipation. Both empathized strongly with the toiling people and their difficult circumstances. They spent a lot of time with people participating in their activities, ceremonies, and even tragedies. Rodney, I remember him as a great dancer, which has been also remarked upon by other speakers before. At the time, the dance craze was the scar, and, and Walter Rodney was quite uh, um, uh, <clears throat> danced it with great energy. Uh, somehow, some of us were disappointed to learn that he also regularly went on Sundays to the Jim Kana Club in Dar es Salaam to play cricket, which we thought was the bourgeois sport like golf, only to learn that it is a popular sport in the Caribbean and that C.L.R. James, the revolutionary intellectual, was also recognized internationally as an authority on cricket. Nyerere admitted, on the other hand, that there were two things he could, not, he could not do. One was to dance, and the other one was to drive a car. But it was also a great bow with the Mancala board game player, known for prolonging the game until he had won several rounds. But in the process, of course, communicating with the people at the lowest levels in the village and in the suburbs in Dar es Salaam, or bringing those who are good to State House to play with him. Both Malim and Rodney believed very much in unity, the single most important condition for victory in the struggle. During independence campaigns, Mualim never tired of preaching about the need for unity, crisscrossing the country so many times, introducing Swahili, the national language, uniting people, decrying ethnic, religious, racial divisions and antagonisms. And this way, he was able to mold 120 ethnic groups into one nation an advantage that Tanzania still enjoys more than, I would say, any country in the region. He strived and succeeded to make Swahili the national language in which all people could carry on social and political discourse. 
After independence for the first time in an African country, debates in parliament were carried out in Swahili. And government business was, and to a large extent, also contact, conducted, uh, conducted in Swahili. The adoption of Kiswahili is uh, one of the official languages of the, whole, of the African Union uh, and of SADC. And especially now that the DRC is coming into East Africa, must be seen for the great significance it does to bridge the language gap between the East and West and really enhance the possibilities of an African by enabling people to speak in one African language. Since, as many people have noticed, the influence of these two, the foreign languages has gone down tremendously. As after all, speaking English or speaking for French no longer guarantees you a job as it used to do in the past. To both Mualim Nyerere and Rodney, the evil of colonialism lay not only in that exploited people, their labor and their resources, and of course it did so ruthlessly. But the worst of it was the humiliation, total disregard and abuse of the dignity of black people, treating them as if they were subhuman. Mualim and Rodney believed in Krumah's message that Ghana's independence was meaningless unless it was linked up with total liberation of Africa. And this was no idle talk. Nerede proved it by mobilizing all Tanzanians to give whatever they could, including their blood, to support the wars of national liberation in Southern Africa. The OAU Liberation Committee, which was based in Dar Salaam, coordinated African support, and in 1994 saw the last bastion of apartheid and colonialism fall, bringing to an end the centuries-old indignity of foreign rule in Africa. There is a lot to discuss about Nyerere the man, the politician, and the leader. His intellectual capacity was astounding and hostile Western journalists who attempted to cross him would end up regretting indeed. Sometime in 1971 or 1972, Nerele was traveling in Europe and had to stop over in London. Tanzania's relations at the time with UK were not good because of the, the overthrow of Bote by Idi Amin, clearly with the UK government support. Anyway, Prime Minister Heath at the time, Ted Heath, sent word to President Nyerere at the airport asking him to go to Chequers, which is the official British Prime Minister's residence, for a meeting. In typical Mwarimu wit, he sent a reply to him to the, saying to the effect that the distance between the airport to Chequers was the same distance it was Chequers to the airport. So you can see just what kind of person Marim was. Another anecdote that was uh, uh, repeating, sharing, 
And I can't remember the conference in Cancun, and this was uh, Ronald Reagan's, I think, first conference there. Anyway, Nyerere was, according to the Americans, very disrespectful to Reagan because he completely rubbished him in terms of what he was saying about the world. Anyway, again, on the way to Dar es Salaam, he stopped in London and was invited to lunch by the businessman in, in, in London. And then one of them said, but Mr. Nyerere, do you realize who you are speaking to, how you could criticize Reagan like that? Do you know? And Nyerere looked at him and said, as an African, do you think I can't recognize an elephant when I see one? <laughs> in other words, he, this, Nyerere was such a, he had such a sharp brain, such a sharp responses to this kind of question. Born out of, first of all, understanding very, being very, very strong in his own cultural roots, you know, his own cultural, um, the stories, the myths, and so on. Uh, he read an awful lot. He translated Julius Caesar and the Merchant of Venice from uh, English to Swahili. And also he translated Plato's The Republic and was actually editing it when he died in the hospital in London. We've just got the manuscript and we hope to publish it sometimes very soon. Uh, because of these attributes, he had considerable influence on African politics and diplomacy through the organization of African unity, <clears throat> the East African community in Southern Africa development community. During the Cold War period, he played a leading role in the Nalain movement and was very active in establishing the group of 77 in Anktad in order to defend the economic interests of the group, of the group members. This is the work which eventually also went to the South Center uh, uh, and Marim was the chairman with South Center for until he left uh, <clears throat> when he got too old to continue and went on with the work of the, um, uh, negotiating the Burundi peace process. Nyerere's influence in Tanzania's influence at the United Nations and in other international organizations was much greater than its Tanzania's size and resources because of Nyerere's leadership. Its representatives at those conferences were active and disciplined. Salim Ahmed Salim being the best known for among other reasons leading the campaign for the restoration of the seat of the People's Republic of China and the UN in the UN Security Council. The press in the US went to town on the defeat of the US at the UN and unleashed a vilification campaign against Salim claiming he danced a jig on the floor of the General Assembly in celebration of the victory. Salim received a lot of hate mail following the vote and to top it, the US government never forgot it and vetoed his election for the Secretary General of the United Nations in 1981. 
But Mwalimu's last and most humiliating defeat came in the 70s and 80s, after the oil crisis, which had terrible effects on the economic, on the economies of poor countries, increased poverty and hardships of the people. Mwalimu faced the World Bank and IMF hired on, arguing against the structural adjustment programs which decimated the already weak African economies, asking in 1989, must we stop our children to pay debt? To which, alas, the answer was yes. Despite the multitude of voices in the world and studies by the best African economists against subs, the two US-controlled institutions did not budge. It was because of his refusal to sign those agreements which the World Bank and the IMF <clears throat> uh, with a He decided in the end to leave and to let his successor, President Nguyen, be the one to make the decision. And of course, the rest, <coughs> the rest is the same as history, um, because this was, in fact, the intensification of neoliberalism, which uh, uh, we're still living with. At the time of celebrating, it's perhaps not too quite appropriate to inject some element of, uh, I can't say negativity, but some elements of critiquing some aspects of our brothers, especially, I must say, our Baba Taifa. A document penned by Walter Rodney a few days before the beginning of the Sixth Pan-African Congress state his position on Pan-Africanism and African liberation. Comrade Issa has, has already indicated that Malimu came to Pan-Africanism through territorial Pan-Africanism, continental Pan-African through territorial uh, liberation. And uh, <clears throat> in the paper, Towards Pan African Congress, aspects of international class struggle in Africa, the Caribbean, and America. Rodney asks three fundamental questions leading the national struggle. And the second question was if that class was capable of accomplishing the task of national liberation. And most fundamentally, in whose interest was national struggle. Baba Walter. Gordon argues that the PTC, which was the most progressive class in society, the of the is nevertheless incapable in the post-independence era to rise above its class interests and carry out a revolution in the interests of the working people and the peasants, who are, of course, the majority of the population. Baba Walter? Baba he Walter. not only say that, he adds that 
this class does not passively stand aside as an umpire or as a disinterested party, party in the struggle of the working people against local and foreign exploiters. These are class actively for men's division among the people to better control them. Just as imperialism for men's division among states, they're better to manipulate them to do their bidding. Babalata, can you hear me? As far as the petty bourgeois class is concerned, even independent, and now it decides it is their turn to eat. I don't think Walter Rodney was necessarily addressing Mali, addressing Tanzania. This was a question for all countries in Africa. And irrespective of how much progress had been made in many areas, and Tanzania did have great progress in many areas, the question is still is important. What class leads and is this class capable of fulfilling that? Expectations of the revolution. Baba Walter, can you hear me? There is commitment pan Africanism cannot, of course, be doubted. His empathy with black people in the diaspora, his acceptance of African refugees from all over Africa, especially in the Great Lakes area, his interest in the question of Burundi and his work chairman of the process, the peace process. And of course, even controversially, his recognition of Biafra, not because it was meant to break up Nigeria, but because of hopefully trying to challenge and stop the genocide that was taking place there. These are questions about which Nyerere could not sit and, and watch question that troubled him a lot. Now, why is it, for instance, that after so many years and the remarkable and relentless work that Nyerere did, how was it that he himself at some point came to say that now discussing Jamaa socialism in Tanzania, one would have to be mad to do that. So Baba Walter, Baba Walter, can you hear me? Baba Walter? Why had the situation retrogressed so much in Tanzania? I think for Nyerere, the easy answer would be to attribute this retrogression to a failure in leadership. And indeed, leaders here um, would be individuals in the higher echelons of party and state. But Rodin, however, it will not be a failure. 
it will be the consequence of the petty bourgeoisie in power for the last 61 years, during which it has strengthened itself and pushed back Nyerere's more progressive policies. Despite the clarity in socialist documents in Tanzania, one aspect of socialist ideology is missing in all of them, that of class struggle. It goes without saying that if class struggle is denied, then there is no necessity for class organizations to secure class interests. Nyerere had his reasons for aversion to the Soviet Union. And while there was a lot to question about Soviet Union, but there are even more things to be averse to in the capitalist camp. Besides, Marxism was not the property of the Soviet Union. For if such was the case, why was he enamored by the Chinese, who were equally Marxist? Rodney, on the other hand, aspired to be Marxist-Leninist, and this was, in my view, the difference between the two. It is not surprising that Nyerere's years and policies were always subject to passionate debates between those who supported and those who opposed him. And very often it was the left which found itself at loggerheads with Mualimu, questioning the wisdom of some of his policies which seemed clearly contrary to the interests of the workers. As for example, the outlawing of independent trade unions in Tanzania, in 1964, and enacting the National Union of Tanganyika, the affiliate of the ruling party that is control, or the disbandment in 1976 of cooperative unions, which existed since 1925. Kurt, you are not being fair. <laughs> Others are 20 minutes, I've only done 15. Do you mind if I just have three more? Yes, please. Along with these policies, Malim had the habit of appointing managers of parastatal organizations, bank insurances, and so on. And very often of individuals who by no stretch of imagination could be remotely considered adherents to Malim's socialist policies. What he wanted, as according to Professor Shivlin in the biography, Malimu wanted people who could work for him, and that they certainly did. However, when the crunch came, those who worked for him were not there to stand by him. Those who could have had been ridiculed and routed. Those he trusted to nurture nationalism and build socialism, loyalists and survivors alike, metamorphosed overnight into neoliberals. Neoliberals. Summing up Malimu's politics, and in a rather tragic tone, she concludes, Nyerere was the father of the nation, of the masses, not the leader of the mass line. He did all that he could from above through the state to alleviate them with reasonable, if not roaring success. Like an authoritarian father, he never allowed the masses to rebel against those who caused them pain and hunger. Centralization of power from above and suppression of subordinate from below combined with an impeachable personal integrity constituted his popular politics. All these dimensions of the man is politics have cut in the three-volume biography, developments, as the rebellion which we have published. Lots of reports, records of the achievements, and an equal law 
make of ambiguous and controversial policies and the decisions that continue to be debated, especially subsequent presidents, have cherry picked which of his policies they were going to retain and which they were going to throw out. In the end, to repeat what he said, you must be mad to raise the question of socialism in Tanzania. By way of conclusion, whatever their failings, and I'm speaking here about Mwalimu because Rodney's time was too short in his political life. He really had long, a, long, a very long life, of course. These were great Pan-Africans of the last century in the narrow and larger dimension from which there are lessons to learn and about which we must all feel great pride. I will end there and thank you for giving me time to say a few of those words. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope that your Pan-African spirit is fired up just like mine is. You can follow the Walter Ridley Foundation on all your social media platforms. Until next time.